0: Welcome to another podcast from Basics Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So back joining me today for a second look at the role of the advanced practitioner in pre-hospital critical care is Joel Simons. Joel, thanks for coming back and finishing this. Chat Hi, very welcome. Pleased to be here. So we had kind of talked through where you guys are based, a little bit about your role and how that's evolved, and some of the training pathways that have led you to end up in the place that you're at. I guess the next logical question for my brain is... What sort of jobs tickle you? What are the sort of jobs that you're going to pick out the hat and say, oh, that could be one where you guys can make a difference? Yeah,
1: sure. I think that's a really, really good question. And one that we have been working on for some time. I think there's lots of really, really obvious jobs out there where we can definitely make a difference and where we're very obviously helpful. So your major trauma, your big entrapment, your horrible RTC, where we're cutting somebody out, where we're going to have prolonged care on scene. Clearly, that's a situation where we might be able to come and, and provide some support and some additional patient care. I always think sometimes with us, I get reminded of that old Yellow Pages advert. You know, we're not just here for the bad things like the the blocked drains, <laughs> all that kind of picture. You know, we're we're not just here for the huge entrapment. And really the point about the the role is that we're advanced practitioners in critical care, um, not just advanced practitioners in critical trauma care. So from a, a medical criticality point of view as well, we have a real role that we can provide some extra care and support to. So cardiac arrests, we spoke a little bit about in the last episode where we had that discussion, but actually patients that are peri-arrest and particularly patients that are post-arrest we have real scope to provide some support for in those situations. Because we have access and now a reasonable amount of experience at providing, for instance, sort of vasopressive support and sort of sedation around established airways in those post-arrest patients, then we have a real opportunity to really optimize that post-arrest care. And again, we spoke last time about foreshortening that time in the ED about trying to get all of those interventions optimized as far as we can before we arrive in the resource department. So we bring that patient to the hospital in the best possible condition that we can get. So all sides of the cardiac arrest risk, I would say, so both in arrest, post arrest, and peri-arrest is really, really important. So if you are seeing your patient and your first thought is, oh, God, I think they might be about to go off, then that's absolutely a patient where we can come in and make some helpful interventions. Similarly, because of some of the other interventions that we can deliver, patients with significant airway problems and patients with major chest trauma, we can be very useful for as well. And really, I think one of the biggest benefits that we can bring to most patient situations is because of the, the clinical decision making training that we go through and because of the quite significant consultant input and consultant support that we get. We have a reasonable amount of clinical freedom. We're not necessarily as tightly bound to PGDs and published guidelines like JR Calc, for instance, and we're allowed to operate outside some of those written guidelines based on our own clinical decision making. So if, for instance, you're finding a patient and you have given them maximal analgesia that you can and you just can't get their pain under control, then that's absolutely a case for us to come and see that patient and come and give you a hand. If you think you're gonna be with that patient for a very long time while they're getting cut out of the car or while they're getting carried down off the hill, if you're gonna have prolonged care, then that's absolutely a situation where we can come and help out as well. Or if you're just seeing a patient that has something weird and wonderful and complex, where you don't necessarily see unusual complex patients regularly, then by all means, do give us a ring and we will be thrilled to come along and help out with that.
0: That's a really interesting point from a, a basics responders mm. point of view. The vast majority of our responders are rurally yeah. based. And as such, we often have high acuity but low frequency exposure to both trauma and critically ill medical yeah. patients. And I guess listening to you talk that through, one of the things that really strikes me is that there is a big difference between having a skill and using it once in a blue Mm -hmm. moon and having a skill and using it on a weekly, monthly, twice yearly basis. And actually just having that decision-making support in those complex cases could be really useful. Absolutely,
1: entirely. We talk about complex cases, but actually maybe we could better phrase that as rare cases for your practice. I have in the past year, been to a couple of i'm going to say out of hospital cardiac arrests but essentially cardiac arrests immediately outside gp surgeries so people who have felt unwell gone to the doctor and then collapsed and arrested outside and the gp and the practice nurses come out to help but really when is the last time that these guys had to do resuscitation other than uh, an als or an ils reaccreditation? because it's not a part of their regular practice And regularly in those situations, actually, the role that I'm delivering isn't about clinical interventions. It's about catching up with who else is on scene and bringing them together and having that kind of multidisciplinary chat about saying, well, look, this is your patient. You know them really well because you've been looking after them for years. But actually, from a a critical care point of view, I'm thinking this. How does that chime with your understanding of the situation? And I think that probably works quite well with basics responders as well. Because we are specifically tasked to jobs where we feel that our role and our remit would be useful. And a lot of the time there's one of us in the control room looking for those tasks and tasking ourselves. So typically we are sending our own team members out to jobs. But because we're specifically tasked to those kind of major trauma and critically ill medical uh, patients, we see quite a lot of them, you know? um, These become the standard cases that we see quite regularly. And so it might be, you know, reflecting on what you were saying from your peers and your colleagues within Basics, if you're seeing a a traumatic cardiac arrest, for instance, that you might see once a year, then chances are the APCC who's coming along to support that job has probably seen maybe one a month, you know, maybe one every couple of months. But we certainly see these cases quite regularly and so they become more familiar. So that level of decision making and decision support and working with a team on site about how we're going to move forward and how we're going to manage these patients is really, really useful. And I have to say, actually, as well. So sorry, mm-hmm. not to not to cut you off, but one of the other things that I find really useful because we cover quite a large geographical area is I often find myself in the wilds of Perthshire, for instance. (laughs) And I find myself chatting to crews and saying, I'm going to be completely honest, I have no idea where I am. I don't know how far away it is to the nearest ED. I need your local knowledge on this one. I need your understanding of how the local dynamics work. And so a lot of what we do, as I say, is just about bringing all those people together and having that clinical decision-making as a team.
0: I mean, two things strike me from what you're saying there first is that actually just having frequent exposure to these difficult jobs does somewhat lessen the sphincteric <laughs> tone, let's say. Um, and it's quite reassuring just having a, another person who isn't perhaps got a, as much of a raging tachycardia as you have at these jobs. But the other thing is it, we all get somewhat protective over our practice. And it is quite reassuring to hear that you guys are not coming in to take on the job but just to offer support to it entirely
1: entirely you're absolutely right people are protective of their practice and you know as emergency care and pre-hospital care changes and as the face of that changes over time we all see more and more low and mid acuity work and no little kid has ever sat and watched casualty and seen josh the paramedic and thought I really hope I can go and see somebody one day who's had niggly abdo pain for three weeks. So of course, when you get that big job, when you get that sphincteric tonal job, where you go, actually, this is it, this is the moment, this is what I train for, let's go. We absolutely understand that it could be, if not threatening, but not particularly attractive to hear that somebody's coming from elsewhere to come in and take over, to come in and run that for you. Because actually, you're perfectly capable of running that for you. It's just that you don't see lots of them. So yeah, we are very much into the idea that we are not coming to take over. We're not coming to take your Gucci job off you. We're not coming to trample all over the care that you've delivered. We're absolutely here to support crews and responders and patients. Quite often, it has to be said, I will often go to incidents, arrive, have a bit of a chat, listen to the plan that's already in place. And then typically go, well, actually, I don't think I'm really gonna add anything at this point. You guys have got this sewn up. I totally agree with what you're saying and what you're doing. Brilliant, carry on unless you particularly want my help. And sometimes you'll get crews who go, actually, yeah, I was gonna ask you about X or what do you think about this? Or would you mind just having a quick feel of his belly for me? Because it does feel weird and I'm not quite sure. And sometimes just that little bit of conversation and discussion takes place on scene and then we come to the end of it and conclude this guy doesn't need us to come and take over from this crew. He doesn't need us to, to make any huge interventions. Um it's just about reassuring everybody that everyone's on the same page and getting the best care out to that patient. Treat, treat with, with diesel. diesel. Well yeah so treat with diesel having made any meaningful interventions that you can here and now. Diesel is a fantastic drug but if there's something that you could have done 20 minutes of diesel ago You probably should have been
0: doing it. Absolutely. Whilst we're looking at interventions, it would be remiss of me not to talk about sexy (laughs) chip, And it's something that most folk will have a good idea in their head about what is carried in a standard ambulance. Um, Obviously, the sandpiper bags are pretty well-standardised, subject to a small degree of variation (laughs) from person to person. That's a a Um, whole new can of
1: worms not to open on this podcast.
0: And we've got a a reasonable idea of what sort of thing is going to rock up when we hit the big red button and Mm -hmm. call out the trauma teams. Where do you guys sit in terms of extra kit that might be of use to us on a a job?
1: So there's a kind of parallel line to be run there, isn't there, about the interventions that we can come and deliver and the kit that we carry to permit those interventions to happen. So we have a, a slightly expanded formulary, for instance. We carry drugs for some electrolyte management. So we carry calcium, we carry magnesium and sodium bicarb. We have a reasonable analgesia and sedation arm of what we do, and so we would carry ketamine primarily as as the kind of first weapon of choice there, but we also carry penthrox, which can be a a useful additional analgesia, and we also have a reasonably flexible approach to, to vasopressive support too. So from that point of view, from a formulary point of view, those would be my big hitters. So from your acutely unwell, critical medical patient. Those are probably where we're going to come in and be particularly useful. We have a modest surgical intervention role. So we can deliver surgical airways and thoracostomies, finger thoracostomies. And so we carry the equipment required for that. We have portable ultrasound, which we use variously either for IV access or fast scans and cardiac scans. And again, that's dependent on user skill. That's a relatively new piece of technology which is uh, available to our team. And then from an interventional point of view, we also have cardiology arms, what we can do so we can pace and we can cardiovert patients as well. We also carry mechanical CPR, as many ambulances now do, it has to be said. And so that would largely be the primary aspects of the additional equipment that we bring. It's about delivering those extra interventions rather than opening a bag full of phenomenal whiz-bang
0: toys. It's that kind of adaptability and flexibility that really makes minimal kit absolutely a, a very long way. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so let's say, for example, I'm working down in Southern Fife, and I've got a nasty septic mm-hmm. patient who's peri-arrest, and you guys have, <laughs> have sniffed it out uh, and offered your support, and I've yep. decided that might be quite useful. What can I do as a basics responder in anticipation of you guys' getting on scene to try and make this process. Sure,
1: so I think having a reasonably clear picture as to exactly what is going on with that patient. So having some decent monitoring on, having a decent set of observations taken, that first point. I guess the other steps that are gonna come in there is on that APCC's arrival, we're going to need a bit of a handover, we're gonna need a bit of a plan, and then we're gonna execute that plan, and then we're gonna transport that patient. So we joked earlier on about diesel is a great drug, but not if you had things to do 20 minutes ago that you haven't done yet. So if you do have a little bit of time while you're waiting for some additional help to come, let's start thinking about extrication. Let's start thinking about how we're going to get out of the house and into the ambulance. Let's start moving vehicles in such a way that once we do that, we can start moving as transport quite readily. Making sure that your patient has decent access is really, really useful. And really similar to the guidance that gets given about if you're going to call a red team or if a red team is going to come and support you, making sure that we can get in and around that patient on as many sides as we possibly can if they're critically unwell is really, really important.
0: One of the other folk who have spoken on this podcast have talked about a mindset that says, where do I want to be in one minute? Where do I want to be in 10 minutes? Where do I want to be in an hour's time? And where do I want to be six hours from now? And having that kind of mindset of, actually, it's going to take you guys, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes to get to me. So what can I do in the meantime to make progress? Yeah, you're
1: absolutely right. And, you know, we would all say, and I think all members of the team would say, that it's always about a balance. It's always about weighing things up. And if, for instance, you have a central stab wound, so, you know, it's Saturday night in pit lockery and you find somebody who's been stabbed just below the sternum, who is currently GCS-15 up and shouting but has a big hole in them, that is not a time to be waiting for somebody else unless they are literally at the end of the street and they can jump in. That patient needs to get to a surgical intervention and they need to get there quickly. So maybe that's a moment for rendezvousing with that AP somewhere en route, Or maybe it's a moment for just saying, actually, do you know what? We're just going to go. By the time you get here, we could be three minutes from the ED door. And really, I think one of the big things which would be really helpful from our point of view is just opening up that dialogue between the crews on scene and the incoming AP. So like I say, we have 30 minute, 45 minute roughly driving radius that we come to. Most of the time calls that are happening are, are well within that. And actually, any remote calls that we go to, typically the crew are pretty remote as well. So chances are they may have been looking at a 20, 30 minute drive to get somewhere anyway. And so we all arrive roughly within the same sort of 20 minute window. But if you have arrived at a job and you know that there's an APCC coming in or ambulance control have told you that one of us is en route, Just opening up a little bit of dialogue with that incoming member of staff is really, really valuable. So there's often a talk group established on the radio for jobs like this. So come onto that talk group and really just give us as much detail as you can possibly go for. One of the situations that we find is really quite challenging sometimes is when we'll be en route to a job and the message will come over the radio. Stand down critical care, not required here. And that's fine. And that may well be a perfectly legitimate clinical decision that's been made there on scene. But it might be actually that there are interventions or points of assistance or other help that we can bring to that patient that that crew on scene either haven't thought of or aren't aware of just yet. So sometimes a little bit of conversation on the radio, explaining how you've come to that conclusion that we've got nothing to offer on that job, is really, really helpful. And we tend to work on that guideline that says, if you are not completely clear that there's nothing we could add, then just keep us running. We absolutely acknowledge that there are cardiac arrests that turn out to be having a sleep in the park. Okay. There are terrible head injuries, which on arrival are a slightly dribbling scalp lack. We totally get it. And we totally acknowledge that people are able to make those judgments but if you arrive at a job and you see your patient and your first thought is, I don't, I don't think I need critical care for this, then just keep us running, keep us coming. Because as we said earlier on, typically there's another member of the team in the control room who is watching out for other jobs going on. And if something more serious happens, chances are that we'll be getting in touch with that AP on scene and saying, well, what do you think? I've got this, but I've also got this where do you think you would be better placed? That would largely be our take. Keep us running unless it is abundantly clear that you definitely don't need anybody else.
0: No, it's really useful. And it gives a great kind of overall picture of, of where you guys are are at and how you fit into the system. And I suspect as the project progresses, we're probably going to see more and more of you pushing out away from the central belt into perhaps more rural areas. I certainly. Giggled at the idea of 20 minutes being a long time. Yeah, absolutely
1: right. Like, you're completely bang on, Dave. That idea that 20 minutes is a long time. I'm sure 20 minutes is a fantastic-sounding ETA for you, is it? So much.
0: But I also think it's worth
1: thinking about, if you're going to a job and you get told critical care are on their way, they have a 35-minute ETA to you, I think we are all guilty of not always being completely aware of how much time is passing on scene. And, you know, a 20-minute ETA actually... 20 minutes isn't a very long time on scene with a very sick patient because there is lots to do and the sicker that patient gets, the longer those things take to get done. So although a 20 minute ETA might seem to be too far or a 35 minute ETA might seem to be too far, chances are we'll still be on scene by the time that time has passed. I think sometimes we fall back on this idea of scoop and run. We'll just scoop and run. And it always makes me laugh and it it makes me think as though scoop and run is kind of like Expelliarmus right from Hogwarts. Like if you shout the words scoop and run, the patient magically just floats into the back of the ambulance and you get to drive away. Extrication takes time. Packaging takes time. Speaking to the family before you leave takes time. Figuring out who's going to move what vehicle takes time. There is time to wait for us to get there. And yeah, we are keen to come and help.
0: And presumably also we could look at options to project you guys transporting with the patient for an extra top level Support oh yeah a hundred percent a
1: hundred well. percent so if we have arrived and made an intervention that falls within our remit but is probably outside the remit of other people on scene, then of course absolutely we'll be traveling with that patient and supporting them on the way to hospital and one of the other things that we can do as well is have a conversation with your receiving hospital so for instance Open fractures with antibiotics as an example. So recent development within SAS, which is fantastic, but previously it was something that only fell within our skill set rather than the operational road crews skill set. And so I've certainly been on situations where I've gone, actually, I am going to give this guy some antibiotics, and then I'm going to look after him for the next half hour while we walk him out of this forest or carry him out of this forest. But then he doesn't really need me to travel because I'm confident those antibiotics have gone in and he hasn't had a reaction to them and he seems quite safe. But I'm just gonna ring the receiving ED and have a chat with the receiving reg as well to say, listen, I'm sending you this guy. He's had this treatment from me. The crew are going to bring him in. I'm not coming, but if you want to have a chat, this is my number and you can call. And we sometimes get quite positive responses from crews on that where they go, well, you've made decision X on scene and I'm gonna have to justify that decision when I arrive in recess. (laughs) We are always happy to say, you know, that's fine. They can phone me. That's okay. I will take the flak for that because that's part of, we hope, providing that support. It's being the person that will make a more difficult decision if need be, and then take the rap for it as it goes.
0: It's very generous if you to give me a complete carte blanche to use Yeah, your I, your I mean, with and the and caveat that I do
1: actually have to have been there, Dave. Uh- <laughs>
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Now, yep. I know we've done a kind of double episode here, but With all of these, we've been trying to get three top tips for responders to take away. And given that this is a a new development, and I think still very much in its development phase, what are your suggestions in terms of Basics Responders working alongside? Uh, Okay, so
1: three top tips for APCC interaction from Basics Responders. One would have to be open and maintain a dialogue with additional incoming resources. We know it can be difficult sometimes when there's lots going on on scene, But if you've got somebody else coming in to help and you're trying to decide, do we load and go or do we wait for you to come and assist us or how is that going to work or do we need you or not? Do just get in touch. Call us on the radio, pass a decent handover over the airwaves so that we can get a bit of a clearer picture as to what's going on there on the roadside and and we can then be involved in that discussion and that decision with you remotely. So if you're going to stand us down, make that stand down a discussion with us rather than just a single unilateral decision. Tip two as well would be to not just to think of us in the same basket as we typically think about those red teams. So if you have a job that you definitely wouldn't need Medic One to roll out for, you, know, you definitely wouldn't need to ring Scott Star North to come and assist you. But if you are starting to approach the limits of your own practice, so maybe you're starting to hit dosage limits within your own guidelines that you can't step beyond, or actually there's a bit of a tickly issue here where you're not quite sure how to proceed. If you're coming up against those limits, we can probably come and push those limits for you and make decisions that fall out with some of those boundaries which may be holding you back. And then finally, we are all over the place. So if you meet us, please do come over and have a chat. We have phenomenally garish red epaulets which are very distinctive and very easily recognised and make us look a little bit like 1970s Russian generals. But if you see somebody wearing these, please do come over and say hi. Please do introduce yourselves because we are a national resource and we travel across all sorts of different territories. It's always nice to have a friendly face. And if you want to ask questions about what we do or ask questions about jobs and incidents that you've been at and you just want to chew over with somebody, please do come and have a chat. We're always happy to engage with folk.
0: Joel, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for kind of demystifying what you guys do and where you fit into the bigger picture of trauma and reassuring certainly me that actually this isn't a way of taking over. It's a way of supplementing and supporting other aspects of that absolutely, overall trauma. Absolutely. One package. team. Dave, no problem at all. Take care. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.